0: to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number 20 in the series. Today's episode is titled, The Sack of Troy. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode number 20 of Trojan War, the podcast. I am choosing to title this episode, The Sack of Troy. So just a quick recap of where we were at the end of the previous episode. The wooden horse stuffed with 30 Greeks has been towed into the city of Troy. It is now residing beside the Temple of Athena inside the city of troy while the trojan people are about to launch into a party to end all parties they are firmly convinced that now that this statue to the goddess athena has been brought inside the walls of the city athena has switched her allegiances in the war and that the greek fleet has now drowned at sea the greek fleet of course we know has not drowned at sea it has not even really gone very far away it is simply hiding behind the island of Tenedus a mere seven miles away from the city of Troy. Agamemnon and the fleet are waiting there for a signal fire from the walls of Troy, which will indicate that Odysseus and the other Greeks inside of the belly of the horse have effected a safe exit and now are in possession of at least a section of the Trojan walls. And then Agamemnon and the fleet will row back hard in the wee hours of the morning and march directly through the flung wide open, in fact jammed wide open, skying gates. The Trojans have, of course, destroyed their own walls. The prophecy said the walls of Troy would never be destroyed by an enemy force, and Odysseus, of course, had found a way to twist or thwart that prophecy and get the Trojans to just take away and destroy a tiny little bit of their wall, which controlled the opening and closing mechanisms of those mighty Skyene gates. So that's where we left things. Now, at the end of the episode, I left Odysseus and the other warriors inside the belly of that horse, and I drew your attention to one warrior whose name you hadn't heard before, a warrior named Neoptolemus. And I promised you at the time that at some future stage I would get back and tell you Neoptolemus' story, because it's an important story. Well, that future time is now, folks, and so if you will allow me, we are going to have to leap back about five days or so before the night of the horse so that I can pick up on the story of Neoptolemus. And so about five days before the plan went into effect, Agamemnon and the other senior warlords were sitting in this command tent when a long Greek galley pulled up onto the beach, and a warlord clad in glorious and very expensive bronze armor, stepped off of that galley and strode with an imperious confidence directly to the command tent of Agamemnon, king of kings, leader and commander-in-chief of Operation Trojan Storm. And then with not an even by-your-leave or a request or a polite knock on the tent door, if you will, the warlord had strode directly into the warrior's council, interrupted it, marched up to the throne of Agamemnon, and announced his arrival. And here's what he said. My name is Neoptolemus. I am the son of glorious God-born Achilles. And I have come to Troy to burn the city to the ground and to revenge the death of my glorious father. Well, the warlords sitting around that tent fell as silent with shock as you are likely falling silent with shock now. Not one time in the previous ten years had Achilles mentioned that he had a son. And then there was the problem of this particular claimed son of Achilles standing in front of them, was an 18, 19, possibly 20-year-old man, and, well, Achilles, prodigy though he was, could certainly not have fathered a child who was now at that particular age. But the man standing there bore a striking and shocking resemblance to the late Achilles. He was six foot two, he had glorious golden hair, maybe with just a tinge more red in it than Achilles' hair, long, lean muscles, and he he just carried himself with an imperious composed manner which well echoed Achilles to the core. In fact, the way that he spoke to Agamemnon sitting there on the throne immediately got under Agamemnon's skin, and that was, well, the late Achilles through and through. But the man clearly, as Odysseus and the other warlords looked, had to be an imposter. There was was simply no way that a man of that age could be a son of Achilles. Well, Neoptolemus, the the new arrival, turned around and barked out an imperious command to Agamemnon. He said, You will, Agamemnon, have been safely securing my father's glorious god-made armor for the day of my arrival. Bring that armor to me now, Agamemnon. I would wear it. And then Neoptolemus had stood waiting, quietly confident that Agamemnon, king of kings, would simply hop off of his golden throne and rush down the beach and obey this imperious barked command of a complete stranger. Well, Odysseus, recognizing that this was a dicey and awkward situation, stepped forward before Agamemnon could say something foolish or or dangerous in reply, and Odysseus, stepping forward, had decided his best course of action was to Well feign a complete belief in this Neoptolemus's well obvious and clear lie about his true parentage, so Odysseus stepped forward and, smiling, said, Welcome, glorious and wonderful Neoptolemus. We are so glad that the son of Achilles has arrived to assist our efforts. Now, with your indulgence, glorious Neoptolemus, may I ask you a question? Could you tell me the name of your mother, please, or, or the lands from which you hail? And Odysseus was hoping at this stage that he could catch out this imposter, Neoptolemus, in a lie. But the response of Neoptolemus, well, it left even Odysseus speechless. Neoptolemus smiled. He turned to Odysseus and said, My mother's name is Didamia. She is a princess, a daughter of King Lycomedes, of the island of Skyros. I believe you visited that island once, noble Odysseus. It was you who revealed my father's disguise and allowed him to come to Troy and win eternal glory for himself. For that I thank you, Odysseus." Well Odysseus turned around, he, he looked at Neoptolemus, and, and he said, but, but I visited the island of Skyros to, only twelve years ago. That's an impossibility. You, sir, are what, 18, 19, 20? And Neoptolemus had smiled and replied, Noble Odysseus, I am 12 years old. But I am the glorious son of God-born Achilles and the greatest fighting man on this beach. And with that, Neoptolemus had reached for his sword. Would any man in this room care to put my claim to that glory to the test? And just the way that Neoptolemus grasped the hilt of his sword suggested that, well, Neoptolemus was hoping that some man in that tent might want to put Neoptolemus's military prowess to the test. Well, Odysseus decided that the warlords needed a moment to confer privately, so very quickly he turned around to Neoptolemus and said, Noble Neoptolemus, Agamemnon, our glorious king of kings, cannot provide you with the armor because... It is in my tent. I have been storing it safely in my tent, waiting for your glorious arrival. My servants will take you to the tent now, where you can don the armor and then return fully armed to our councils. And with that, Odysseus caught the eye of one of his intelligent and loyal servants, nodded, and the servant guided Neoptolemus way down the beach to the tent of Odysseus to put on, well, that armor that Odysseus had paid such a high price to win just days earlier. But it did give the other warlords an opportunity for a moment of private conversation. They turned to Odysseus, and they said, and they said it, 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 can't be, it can't really be the son of Achilles, can it? And Odysseus turned around with a sigh and said, gentlemen, I fear that it very much is the son of Achilles. Well, Menelaus had said, there's no way. That, that's a 19 or 20-year-old man, not a 12-year-old boy. And Odysseus had smiled and said, well, we're forgetting, of course, that well, the grandmother was Thetis, a deity, and that likely explains the child. And then Odysseus went on and said, Gentlemen, do you recollect all those those stories we grew up that we thought were just exaggerations about the young Achilles when he was 10, 11, 12 years old, and how he was a huge, towering man, besting men three times his age in battle? Well, gentlemen, I think we have Achilles second reborn. Neoptolemus is definitely Achilles' son. Now, why he... Chose not to tell us anything about the boys, a mystery I guess we'll never get an answer to, but it's pretty clear that over the last ten years, as Odysseus headed off on his scourging of the Mediterranean during the first ten years of this siege, well, it's obvious, gentlemen, that Achilles was dropping in at the island of Skyros to keep his growing son up to date on events on the beaches of Troy. Then Odysseus laughed and he said, and and even if the boy is 12 years old, if you think about the math, there were three princess daughters on that island when I arrived. And well, even to make the math work at 12 years old, Achilles must have found his way into, well, uh, the sheets of one of those girls, the Damio, on the very first night of his disguise. That's our boy Achilles for you. Well, Agamemnon had turned around to the warlords at this point with a grumble and said, I don't need any evidence at all except the way that he treated me. That is definitely the son of Achilles. Did you see see the complete lack of respect? And Odysseus turned around and said, and Agamemnon, on that point, we are going to have to be very, very cautious with this Neoptolemus. And gentlemen, here's the reason why. Yes, when we look at Neoptolemus, he looks like a man, but we have to recognize that That man, Neoptolemus, might look like a man, but inside of that man's body was the personality and the mental set of a 12-year-old adolescent boy. Then with a smile, Odysseus turned to the other warlords. And do any of you recall what you were like at 12 years old? We will have to handle this Neoptolemus with very, very delicate gloves. Agamemnon, when you insulted his father Achilles, Achilles' response had been to throw down his sword and march to the other end of the beach and refuse to fight. Agamemnon, my suspicion is if you insult the 12-year-old son of Achilles, his response will be to draw his sword and take off your head. It's what a 12-year-old boy would do. And ladies and gentlemen, I think Odysseus is actually understood the essential psychology going on inside of the mindset of Neoptolemus. And you have to, I I don't know, pity Neoptolemus in many ways. Here he is, a 12-year-old boy who has grown up inside of the shadow of history's most great and glorious and wonderful killing machine and weapon of mass destruction. And by the time that poor Neoptolemus is old enough to start thinking about these things, at seven or eight years old, well, Achilles, his dad, is a legend across the entire Mediterranean basin. So though Neoptolemus grew up with, well, the gift of his father or Thetis' DNA in his genes, which turned him into a natural warrior and a gifted athlete, the fact of the matter is he was still an insecure adolescent boy trying to, well, find his place in the world. And when Neoptolemus rolled up onto that beach of Troy and marched into the command tent of Agamemnon and the other warriors, well, the surface, of course, might have been all bluster and arrogance, but if you think it through, what else was the poor boy supposed to do? He was stepping into a room of seasoned veteran, glorious warlords with vastly long resumes. And of course, Neoptolemus at 12, while well, he had the military prose, would have had absolutely no resume at all. So what, what he did when he walked into that tent and, and feigned the air of haughtiness and, and supreme self-confidence and threatened to draw his sword and fight anybody is, well, what any young kid who had been finally invited to play in the big leagues with much older boys would do. The kid would overcompensate and make it a point to be the toughest most badass guy in the gang for fear of being caught out and looking like the small little boy that inside he really felt like. So when Odysseus looked at Neoptolemus he recognized that there were two things going on here. There was a genuine deadly weapon of mass destruction But there was also a 12-year-old boy searching desperately for some form of validation or some kind of a mentor, somebody to take him under his wing and say, you're all right, kid, and, and we respect you, and we're not looking at you sideways and giggling about your age or your youth or that huge, massive body you have inside of your young, young, impressionable mind. And Odysseus thought, I might have lost myself a set of armor today, but in exchange, I've likely gained myself the possibility of a much more lethal and potent weapon of destruction. So Odysseus, with a smile, turned to the warlords and said, Gentlemen, I am going to go down to my tent. I am going to make sure that Neoptolemus is comfortable, and I am going to help settle him into the army. It will be fine, gentlemen. And you, Agamemnon, just stay out of the boy's way for a few days. It is likely for everybody's best. The last thing Odysseus knew that the Greeks needed right at their point of victory was, well, an Agamemnon-Achilles II feud breaking out on their beach. So Odysseus re-entered his tent. By that stage, Neoptolemus had almost put on the glorious gold armor of his father Achilles, and as Odysseus noted, the armor fit flawlessly. This genuinely was the son of Achilles. And Odysseus, feigning admiration and awe, dropped to his knees and looked up and said, Achilles reborn, and, and, and then invited Neoptolemus. Odysseus asked if he could have the honor, the privilege of Neoptolemus agreeing to bunk with him in his tent. As Odysseus turned around to Neoptolemus and said, there are so many things about the glorious art of war that I could learn from you, sir. And Neoptolemus, 12 years old, naive, and well desperate for any form of validation, took the bait and agreed that he would bunk down with Odysseus for the duration of the war. And on that day, though, Neoptolemus didn't realize it, he had turned his free will, his decisions, his obedience, and his loyalty over to the wiliest and the craftiest of the Greeks. Well, a very few days after that, the wooden horse was complete. Apeus, the craftsman, gave a nod to Odysseus. Odysseus gave a nod to Agamemnon. Agamemnon announced the departure of the fleet. The beach was emptied of Greeks, apparently going home. Odysseus called in Sinon, beat him up convincingly, then threw Sinon into a sewage latrine. And then Odysseus and the other 30 warriors prepared to climb into the belly of the horse. Now, there was a brief telling little conversation, which we actually have recorded, folks, between Odysseus and Neoptolemus at that particular point. Neoptolemus had been brought into the plan. Odysseus thought this was a good way of well-earning the young man's trust. None of the other warlords knew about the plan, save Agamemnon, so now Neoptolemus felt special and even more loyal and obedient to Odysseus. But Neoptolemus, who had been raised and imbued in the heroic tradition in his eyes at 12 years old, filled with an idealistic world of warfare which was completely different from Odysseus's real politic Machiavellian approach, well, Neoptolemus had actually had some qualms and questions about the entire strategy of the wooden horse in the first place. He had, he had actually turned to Odysseus and, and asked a question, and we have the conversation recorded in a play by Sophocles. It's in a play called Philoctetes, but just allow me to read this conversation to you word for word because it's really, really telling. Neoptolemus asked Odysseus the following question. Odysseus, it is not in my nature to achieve anything by means of evil cunning, but I am ready to take the man by force and without treachery. To which Odysseus replied, Neoptolemus, I too in my youth once had a slow tongue and an active hand, but now I see that the tongue, not action, is what masters everything among men. Neoptolemus. Then you think it brings no shame to speak what is false? Odysseus. No, not if the falsehood yields deliverance. And folks, in that brief conversation, I think I can encapsulate the Odysseus-Neoptolemus relationship. The sad thing is that poor Neoptolemus, a 12-year-old adolescent boy stuck in this huge man's body, did not realize that when Odysseus talked about falsehood yielding deliverance, he wasn't only referring to the wooden horse, he was referring to the way which Odysseus was treating that young man, that son of Achilles. So at this stage... All we have to do folks is bring things right back up to the present where the Greek warlords are sitting inside of the horse waiting for the people of Troy to quit their partying and finally collapse into a drunken stupor or just fall asleep from the long and exciting day that they've had. Now sitting inside of that horse of course uh, Odysseus and his men waited and waited and waited and and slowly 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 the reveling and the partying died down the Trojan people had actually chosen the wooden horse in the temple of Athena as sort of their central town square so all night you heard people arriving and and bringing gifts and pouring libations at the base of the horse and and Odysseus and his men inside the horse so they couldn't see anything had this image of literally thousands of drunken partying trojans singing and dancing and marching around the horse but they knew it was only a matter of time till those trojans actually fell asleep and then the rope ladder could come down Now there was one very dicey and frightening moment, sometime who knows when, it might have been at midnight, it might have been 1am in the morning, when Odysseus and his men were sitting inside of the horse, they suddenly felt the body of the horse begin to shake, and an echoey, resonating sound came up from one of the scaffolding legs holding that horse, and to the horror of Odysseus and his men, they recognized that somebody on the outside was taking an axe to the side of the leg of the horse and trying to actually chop away at the horse. And and then the crowd fell silent and they heard raving and screaming of a woman. And and, and the woman's voice was, well, giving them away. The woman was very, very clearly warning all of the Trojans that the belly of the horse contained Greeks and it needed to be destroyed. And, and, and for a brief moment, Odysseus and his men thought, we, we've been found out. And and then the choices were very clear. Stay and die in the horse or drop the rope ladder immediately and, and get as many men to the ground as we can before the rest of us are killed. And just as Odysseus was about to opt for the second course and drop that ladder, in, well, the woman's voice fell silent and the chopping stopped. A moment later, the partying continued and, well, that was the end of it. But what Odysseus and his men didn't know, folks, that I will fill you in on because it's a really cool story, is the woman who was screaming and chopping with her axe at that horse. Now, I mentioned her in an earlier episode, and again, I promised that I'd get back to her story later, but the woman's name was Cassandra, and now is the time for me to tell you the sad and horrible story about poor Cassandra. Cassandra was a princess, a daughter of King Prime and Queen Hecuba, and her early years are sort of lost inside of the historical memory, but generally what seems to have happened is at a very young age, Cassandra was brought to the temple of the god Apollo inside of the city of Troy and and spent a night there, and somehow in the morning, Cassandra woke up and she had been, well, gifted or cursed, depending on how you think about such things, with, well, the ability to prophecy the future with 100% total accuracy. So Cassandra, as a little girl princess at that point, was turned over to the temple of the god Apollo as Apollo's priestess. She didn't return inside of the royal palace, and she just grew up as a priestess, and people could go to the temple and hear prophecies from Cassandra, who was always dead accurate right. Well, everything was wonderful and fine in Cassandra's life until she matured into womanhood. And when Cassandra matured into womanhood, here the historical record is much more complete and authoritative. Uh, Apparently... Cassandra was drop-dead gorgeous, and of course that meant that as a woman inside of the Bronze Age, she was in constant peril, not only from human beings, but from the male Olympian gods. And one day in Cassandra's 15th year, the inevitable happened, and Apollo, the god in charge of the temple himself, had manifested himself, we hope in human form, at the side of Cassandra, his virgin priestess, and invited Cassandra to share his bed. Well, Cassandra had refused the sexual advances of the god Apollo, and the god Apollo, upset by this, it was not ever a good idea to refuse the, well, the offer of the godhead of a god, so to speak, Well, Apollo had turned around, and to get his revenge on Cassandra, Apollo had spat into the poor girl's mouth. And... The upshot of that particular violation was that from that moment forward for the rest of Cassandra's life, she could still prophecy with 100% accuracy, but nobody ever believed a single thing that she said. Well, eventually it drove Cassandra mad. Uh, she survived giving out prophecies and people not listening to them and then suffering the consequences uh, with some degree of sanity up until 10-12 years earlier when Paris, Prince of Troy, had rolled back into the Trojan harbour in the company of Helen, Menelaus's wife. And at, at that point, Cassandra could see the entire future of the entire Trojan War epic, which I have told you, unfolding before her eyes. And she began to scream immediately that... Not only was Paris the torch that was going to destroy the city of Troy, but Helen was the actual thing that was going to ignite that torch. And and though Cassandra screamed and warned and raved everybody inside of the royal family, well, everybody just kind of sort of heard what she said but didn't respond to it or said, Oh, that's nice, Cassandra. It's a a shame that you're screaming so loud. And, And Cassandra began to slowly go mad. Well, over the next 10 years of the siege of Troy, Cassandra continued to prophesy and warn Trojans about everything along the way. She saw Philoctetes' as arrows coming at Paris. She saw the death of Hector if he stayed outside of the walls. She saw everything, and every time that she tried to warn, well, the Trojan people just said, that's nice, Cassandra, and ignored her, and... As Cassandra grew more and more raving and hysterical in in terms of how the people of Troy thought about her, eventually it got to the point where she became socially embarrassing and awkward because possibly even though the Trojan people weren't, because of Apollo's curse, believing her, there was possibly a hint or an uncomfortable feeling that they got around Cassandra. So Essentially, they built a quiet little room inside of the palace. They insulated that room as best they could with heavy draperies and Cassandra spent most of her life locked up in that quiet, silent, little, soundproofed, padded room. And that's where she would have been on the night of the horse. But somehow she got out of her room in that night, and likely we can deduce what happened. Uh, Some member of the royal family or some lady-in-waiting feeling badly for poor Cassandra likely thought, well, what harm can she possibly prophesy in a night like this? The Greeks are drowned at sea. It's the greatest day Troy has had in ten years. Let's at least let the poor girl out of her cage for one night so that she can celebrate. And they had unlocked the door to Cassandra's quiet little soundproofed padded room, and Cassandra, clad only in a night had somehow gone raving and screaming, of course, towards the threat, the source of Troy's greatest danger, the wooden horse. When she had arrived at the horse, she had somehow managed to find an axe, and well, of course, that involved then Cassandra trying to chop away at the horse as best she could to reveal the hollow belly of the horse and screaming warnings to the Trojan people. Well, eventually, some member of the royal family or some soldier had seen what Cassandra was doing to the horse and not wanting to offend the goddess Athena by having somebody else chop at that horse. Remember, poor Lacon had thrown a spear at it and died for it. They had tenderly, but with necessary force, taken Cassandra away and brought her instead to the temple of the goddess Athena beside the horse. and. Poor Cassandra, worn out exhausted and realizing that the last of her attempts at warning and prophecy weren't working, had huddled up in a tearful mass beside the small statue of the goddess Athena and fallen asleep there. And then, in the wee hours of the morning, the last of the Trojans partying beside that horse fell asleep or into some sort of a drunken sleep stupor. After 15 minutes of silence, Odysseus gave the nod, the trap door concealed into the back of the horse was opened, the rope ladder woven into the tail of the horse was released, and the 30 Greek warlords, clad in bronze armour, quietly climbed down inside of the sleeping city of Troy. They moved as quickly as they could back to the Skying Gates. Odysseus posted a few guards there, then the rest of the Greeks climbed up to the top of the wall, lit signal torches, and waved them out across the dark Mediterranean sky. And within a matter of seconds, the Greeks standing on the battlements of that city could see the flaming signal fires from seven miles away on the island of Tenedus. They knew that Agamemnon had seen the signal, and now it was a matter of hunkering down and waiting patiently, breathlessly, for the 90 minutes it would take before the Greeks were back on the beach. Well, 90 minutes later, after a forced row and a forced march, Agamemnon had marshaled his forces outside of the gaping, wide-open Skyene gates. He gave his final orders to the warlords and to the troops. Agamemnon explained that the city was asleep They would encounter very, very little resistance. Agamemnon said, kill as you have to, but whatever you do, do not destroy this city. The city we want to preserve. It is the greatest treasure in the Mediterranean. And under his breath, Agamemnon said, and of course, I intend to move in and become Agamemnon, king of kings, new king of Troy. It was an absolutely glorious palace, much nicer than what he had back at Mycenae. And then, ladies and gentlemen, the sack of the city of Troy began. Now, I wish that I could tell you about the Battle of Troy in, well, vivid technicolor detail and provide you with a play-by-play of what happened that night, but I really can't. And the reason for that, of course, is a problem that we've come up against in all kinds of other episodes of Trojan War, the podcast. And that's simply that, well, these ancient epic stories really had no interest in talking about, well, the lesser deeds of the common front soldiers. So allow me, though, to surmise and tell you what happened that night, and that's basically because, well, the sack of every town or city in world history essentially happens the very same way, doesn't it? It doesn't matter if you're in the Bronze Age or in the 21st century, it's always the same. So we know what would have happened that night. The Trojan soldiers, caught by surprise when they heard the Greeks and screaming, well, the Trojan soldiers would have got up, roused themselves as quickly as possible, and desperately attempted to organize and create some sort of a rearguard action fight back. But they would have been overwhelmed. They wouldn't have had a chance against the superior numbers of the Greeks. Some of the Trojan soldiers then would have chosen a course of courage and honor and stayed and desperately tried to defend the citadel and the palace located in the middle of the city. Other of the Trojan soldiers, seeing the writing on the wall, would have dropped their weapons and run for the security in the exit of the nearest gate and retreat. As for the Greeks, well, they of course would have represented the whole spectrum of human behavior in a night of a siege of a city too. Some of the Greeks, we can assume, would have behaved exceedingly well, and even in the midst of the death and the carnage that was happening, would have taken a moment to spare a Trojan child or to keep their hands deliberately off a Trojan young woman when the possibility was available to them. And others of the Greeks, as happens in every city or town under sack or siege since the dawn of man, while other the Greek soldiers would have, under the cover of that dark and with the flames around them, would have taken full opportunity to allow the worst of their natures out. So there would have been butcheries, there would have been needless and senseless murders, and there would have been countless rapes. As to the citizens of the people of Troy, as to those poor people, well, they would have done what poor people suddenly besieged would have done everywhere. They would have desperately run, looking for and gathering their loved ones, pulling them in from wherever they could find them, then grabbed whatever valuable possessions they hoped they could carry, and then rushed for the exits of the burning city. The skying gates, of course, were blocked. There would have been Greeks still flooding in, and that only left two exits for the people of Troy. Some of them would have made it, and those that did make it would have streamed as quickly as possible to the hiding places and the security and the cover of the forest's amount Ida. As for the rest of the Trojans, well, likely they died in the tens of the thousands inside of the city that night. Now, some of you might have wondered why Troy didn't surrender. Why not? Why was there no leadership? Why did somebody not just put up a white flag and say, "Okay, you've got the city, spare the prisoners? And that was because back in the Bronze Age, rules of war were not very well established. There were absolutely no rules of war to cover civilian non-combatants. And the expectation was that if a city or a town held out and refused to end its siege, and that's exactly what Troy had done for the last 10 years, then the fates of the people inside of that city were always the most horrendous. Countless examples down through the centuries of besieged cities, and finally the besieging army when they take the city, putting everybody inside to the sword. So that was just what happened in the Bronze Age world. But still... It raises a question of, couldn't a city of that size have held on for at least more than a few hours? Because the accounts, the historical record, seems to suggest that by morning it was all over, and... Well there's a few answers to why that didn't happen and answer number one I've already alluded to. The Greeks had superior numbers. You'll remember that Achilles on that singular day of his Aristeia had well personally destroyed a huge section of the Trojan army and then some of their failed efforts with the help of Amazon princesses and things like that had lost them the rest of the troops. So well the ratio of Greeks to Trojans fighting that night was likely five Greeks for every Trojan. But some of you will turn around and say, yes, but a smaller force and a well-fortified citadel can hold off a larger army for a very long time and cite all kinds of historical precedent. And, And you're right. But the second answer to the question about why Troy fell so quickly, I think, is the element of surprise. The Trojans didn't see it coming. It happened at night, which always makes things confusing. And then let's just add the potent mix, which is alcohol or the hangovers from it. The Trojan soldiers didn't have time to organize. They were a little bit blurry-eyed. They were spread out all over the place. Some of the soldiers had likely left their weapons at home when they'd started to party, so they really didn't get a chance to possibly organize an effective resistance. And finally and ultimately, the thing that really doomed the Trojans was a complete lack of military or political leadership on that night of the horse. If you think about it, there really were only, well, a few options available to lead or organize some sort of a Trojan military resistance. And those options weren't very attractive. The official still head of the city of Troy, the king of Troy, was Priam, but he was an 81-year-old man. That was absolutely not going to be a source of supreme military leadership on a night like this. There were a few of the Trojan princes left, but those were all the masters of dancing princes, and most of them were passed out dead drunk by now. Uh, The heir apparent to the city of Troy, Helen's new husband, Deiphobus, well, he had got into his cups early in the evening, and he was so stupid out drunk that he had no idea that the city was even under attack. And that meant that there was only one possible leader that could have saved Troy in that night, and of course that was the Trojan prince Aeneas. Now, I've already talked about Aeneas in a number of previous episodes, so just a very quick recap, of course. Aeneas was actually a prince of the city of Dardania, which was just down the road from Troy, if you will. The Dardanians and the Trojans were first cousins. And Aeneas had come to the assistance of Troy a decade ago and done absolutely wonderful and noble things inside of that city. He was intelligent, he was popular, he was a great military leader, he had fought in all of the great battles, and the gods had actually favored Aeneas twice and plucked him away at the last moment from certain death at the hands of Greek warlords. So Aeneas was a natural heir to the city and the natural leader of the city, but he was not a direct child of Priam and Hecuba's, and Priam being a jealous old monarch in the eastern tradition had spent the last 10 years snubbing Aeneas and not allowing Aeneas his logical and rightful place on the throne. So the question is why did Aeneas not organize a resistance that night? He certainly would have been the man that could have rallied the troops and done it and he was certainly a man who was a fearsome fighter and could have actually put up a really 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 stiff resistance himself. Now, to answer that question, folks, I essentially have to introduce you to a very contemporary concept. And a lot of you might have heard of the phrase, the fog of war. And I think the fog of war is really a worthwhile thing to spend a moment on here, because in our accounts of what happened to that night during the battle, to the different warlords and to the different individuals involved, well, one of the challenges that we face is we face this challenge of the fog of war. Before a battle begins, there were very clearly laid out plans and Agamemnon had laid out his plans very clearly. He wanted to quickly and effectively capture the city, uh, kill any resistance as necessary, but then secure the city and hold on to it. And he had sent off his warlords and his soldiers with those instructions. But then in the dark, in the night, in the heat of battle, well, that's where the fog creeps in and unaccountable things begin to happen, unexpected things begin to happen. And then after the day of the fight or the night of the fight, accounts of what did happen begin to vary wildly. Post the sack of a city, or post any battle in world history, well, the fog creeps in pretty quickly in the accounts, and, well, the survivors have one account the victors have another account, and the accounts vary wildly, and a lot of the times the accounts are designed to make the victors look good or to, well, fog over some of the horrifying things that the victors had to do to secure a victory. So w- when I tell you about what's going to happen with the different warlords and the balance of today's story, I'm constantly going to be referring back to the idea that we have these blurry and multiple accounts, and some of that is well, the reality of the fog of war, and nobody really knew what was happening in the night, in the dark, in the fire. But the other truth of the matter is that after the battle, there is a deliberate attempt, sometimes by the victorious forces, or even sometimes by the survivors of the losing forces, to pull fog over the truth of what might have happened, because the truth of what might have happened that night is sometimes, or often, inside of a battle, very ugly indeed. So back to the question of why did Aeneas not save the city of Troy that night, and. The Greeks tell us, and all of the Greek accounts of it, they say the reason Aeneas didn't save the city is because Aeneas was no longer at Troy. According to the Greek historians, Aeneas had actually left the city days earlier. In some accounts, he had actually received a dream or a warning from his goddess mother Aphrodite, and Aphrodite had said, I'm a goddess, and I can tell you, Aeneas, Zeus has decided to doom the city, so get out now while you can. And Aeneas, obeying the will of the gods and the instructions of Aphrodite, had packed up and cleared out of town. So that's one possible account, and if that is the case, well, I really don't particularly blame Aeneas, given the shabby treatment he received at the hands of the Trojan soldiers why would you stick around on the night of the wooden horse uh, there was nothing in it for you anymore and in fact some of the greek historians even go further and argue that the greeks were so impressed by aeneas they considered him such a wonderful and gentle and pious and courageous and noble man that before the night of the horse they actually invited aeneas and his family to depart the city in peace and well, I don't buy that particular account for a moment, but I would buy a variation on the account, which is that Odysseus, cleverest of the Greeks, recognized that Aeneas was the only possible source of an organized resistance on the upcoming night of the horse. So Odysseus had invited Aeneas and his family to leave the city of Troy unopposed, having nothing at all to do with Aeneas's pious character or being a great family man. Now, of course, let's get on to the other account, of what happened that night. And this is the account that Aeneas personally provides, well, via his publicist, the Latin writer Virgil, writing, well, a thousand years after the fact. But here are the words that Virgil puts into Aeneas's mouth when Aeneas personally, inside of that story, the Aeneid, describes the knight of the horse. Well, according to Aeneas' account, he had been sound asleep and then woken up when he had heard, well, the sack of the city of Troy beginning and had immediately donned his armor and begun to launch a heroic and stiff resistance and mobilize the Trojan troops. But at that point, his mother, the goddess Aphrodite, had appeared and ordered Aeneas to leave the city and run away with his family. Aeneas had refused Aphrodite and said, no, the right thing to do is to stay and fight and to die courageously and nobly. I will not run away, or words to that sort of heroic effect. And Aphrodite at that point had shown Aeneas the hard truth of what was happening to Troy. And what she had done is she had removed the mist from the deities. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I've been talking about the mist since way back in episode one of Trojan War, the podcast, and of how the Olympian deities use this mist to conceal their actions from human beings. Well, at this point, apparently, Aphrodite snapped her fingers or flicked her wand or whatever magic thing it was she did, and suddenly Aeneas didn't only see the fighting taking place among the humans inside the city, he saw the Olympian deities himself. And it turned out that the Olympian deities were actively and eagerly participating and engaged in the sack in the destruction of Troy. There was Hera, there was Athena, and there was Poseidon. The three hated enemies of the Trojans, and they were personally taking apart the city. They were setting it to fire, Poseidon, the earth-shaker god was shaking its walls and its foundations, and Hera was taking great delight in participating in the butchery. And up on Mount Olympus, when the fog and the mist was removed, Aeneas saw Zeus revealed, cheering on the deities as they destroyed the city of Troy, thus fulfilling either the will of Zeus or the will of fate and deadly destiny. So at that point, Aphrodite turned around and said, Aeneas... You, you can't thwart the will of the gods. Your requirement, Aeneas, is to be dutiful and obedient to the will of the gods. And so Aeneas had decided to flee the city, but not before, of course. He heading back to the family home, gathering up his aged, infirm father, who could no longer walk, so Aeneas carried him on his back, and his young son, who was too young to walk, so Aeneas carried him in his arms, and his wife. And then the happy little troop left the city via one of the rear gates. Now, it's a beautifully symbolic little story that Aeneas tells because in carrying his father and his son, Aeneas was responsible in carrying out of the burning city of Troy both the past and the historical memory of Troy and the future, the young son. And and that was very, very beautiful and offered a beautiful sort of romantic symmetry. And of course, then halfway out across the city, Aeneas somehow got disconnected from his poor wife who mysteriously vanished unaccountably which was very useful because later on Aeneas was going to have to remarry another woman, settle down in a new city, and fulfill Poseidon's prophecy that Aeneas would be the founder of a glorious new city that even rivaled that of Troy. So you can decide for yourself, ladies and gentlemen, was Aeneas inside of the city on the night of the wooden horse, or was Aeneas long gone in the fog of war? Nobody really knows. And that, folks, brings us on to the story of Odysseus and Neoptolemus and how they spent that night of the horse. Well, Odysseus recognized, because he was the cleverest of the Greeks and a wily and canny politician, that what needed to be done that night as the city burned was a little bit of ugly housekeeping. And the housekeeping or the house cleaning that needed to be done specifically was the house of the family of Priam. Odysseus recognized that all traces of Priam and Hecuba's royal line needed to be destroyed that night under the cover of the fog of war. There could be no successors, no heirs, no rallying points by which the Trojans could gather and then someday come back and inflict a terrible revenge against the Greeks. So everybody Everybody in the royal family Odysseus recognized who could possibly rally Troy and the refugees of that city needed to be put to the sword. Now, it was going to be an ugly business. It was also a dangerous business from a public relations perspective. Some of the people that had to die were not glorious people to kill, and it was also a dangerous and an ugly business from a deity perspective. Some of the people that needed to die, well, the deities liked those people, and well, Odysseus knew he didn't want to be the man who offended the deities by killing those Trojan members of the royal family. Now, fortunately for Odysseus and that night, he was accompanied by his, his acolyte, his, his loyal follower, the dangerous weapon of mass destruction too, history's second most glorious fighting and killing machine, Achilles II, his son Neoptolemus. So Odysseus guided the 12-year-old man mountain of a boy through the burning city of Troy directly to the citadel and to the royal quarters. Now, there was some stiff fighting that had to be done at that particular point. The Trojan soldiers were doing their very best to protect the royal family, but Neoptolemus proved his genetic inheritance, and Neoptolemus made quick work of everybody who resisted. He and Odysseus on their way into the palace. We actually have recorded the names of 14 men that Neoptolemus killed in his fight into the citadel that night. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, in the epic tradition, only the important fighters were mentioned, so Neoptolemus's death count was likely way, way, way higher that night if we also add up all the foot soldiers that died at Neoptolemus's sort. Well eventually, with Odysseus's guidance and Neoptolemus's fighting prowess, the two of them made it into the royal throne room of the palace of Troy, and there they found old man Priam standing beside his throne. The poor old king, in his 81st year, had clad himself in the royal armor of the king of Troy and, The armor was so heavy and so glorious that it was all Priam could do to actually hold himself up straight in that armor, let alone move in it. But Priam had decided that he was the last thing between the Greeks and his city, and he was going to go down fighting. In his hand, Odysseus noted there was a long, fearsome-looking spear. But when Priam picked up that spear and launched it, well, Odysseus and Neoptolemus had no idea who the target was, because there was no strength in the old man's arm, and it simply fell and clattered sorrowfully and pitifully to the ground. And then Priam, recognizing that he really couldn't fight, had broken down, clutched onto the statue of a family god at the altar, and begged for mercy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this was a dicey and difficult business because, well, the Olympian gods set out no rules for warfare in the treatment of human beings, one of the rules that the Olympian gods had is that you did not in any way violate or desecrate their statues, their temples, or any of their religious sites. And so when a human being, particularly a human being who was a noble gods-fearing king, was clutching onto a statue of a deity, and begging for mercy, no right-minded man on the Greek or the Trojan army would do anything but grant that human being mercy, because to assault the human being at that point was to assault by extension the deity. So Odysseus recognized that he was now in a little bit of a bind. Priam needed to be killed, but Priam was clutching on to a statue of an Olympian deity, and Odysseus of course wasn't going to be the man that invoked personally the wrath of the gods. So he turned and looked instead to Neoptolemus. And it only took a few words. The wrath of Neoptolemus! The bards will sing of it, like they sang the wrath of your father Achilles. And Neoptolemus, taking the bait, immediately violated the code of the gods, grabbed the old king Priam, pulled him by his long grey hair away from the statue, pulled him up to his full height and then gutted the old king with a sword. All the while, Hecuba, Prime's wife and now widow, watched on, screaming uncontrollably. Well, that was the first half of the ugly housekeeping mission that Odysseus wanted to do that night. But now that the father was dead, Troy's past, if you will, it was time for Odysseus to make sure that Troy didn't have a future that lived. So they headed to the bedroom of Hector, Andromaca, and the young heir to that couple, the two-year-old boy, Prince Astynax. You'll remember that this was Hector and Andromaca's only child. His name was Astynax. Hector had named him Astynax because in Trojan that name meant lord of the city, and indeed Astynax would someday grow up to inherit that city if things turned out well, but on this night, ladies and gentlemen, things are going to turn out very badly indeed. Well, Andromache, Hector's widow, still a beautiful young woman, was sitting on her chair beside the open window, looking out to the fighting that was happening in the courtyard below and knowing that her days or her hours or her minutes were numbered, trying to comfort and console her two-year-old son who was sitting confused in her lap. And that's when Odysseus and Neoptolemus burst into the room. Well, Neoptolemus had now warmed to the theme, and obviously Andromache wasn't clutching onto any statue. so Neoptolemus raised his sword above his head and was preparing to bring it down onto Andromache and sever the two of them, mother and son, in one swipe of the sword, when Odysseus had suddenly realized that, well, obviously poor Neoptolemus hadn't quite completely clued into the full heroic Greek warrior's code. So he stopped Neoptolemus for a moment. He said, son, Neoptolemus, glorious Neoptolemus. And then he asked him a question. Are you sure, Neoptolemus, that you wish to kill the woman? There might be more interesting things to do with a woman that beautiful. Noble Neoptolemus. And the 12-year-old boy caught in the 20-year-old man's body Briefly confused, paused, and then, was that a hint of a blush when understanding came? He grasped on to Odysseus's meaning, and well on cue, rose to the occasion, grabbing Andromache. Neoptolemus had pulled her up to full height, then ripped off her dress, exposing her nakedness. You are my prize of war now, bitch. And Neoptolemus, warming to his theme, continued, And from now on, you shall warm my bed. And then Neoptolemus, in full, confident, adolescent flight, concluded, And you will learn that I am twice the man that your pector ever was, you... you... bitch. And with that, Neoptolemus threw Andromache to one side, but then, of course, there was a matter of a the two-year-old. He needed to die. Now, Odysseus, of course, didn't want to take the chance of killing him. So he turned to Neoptolemus, and again, all it took was a simple prompt. Your father, Neoptolemus, won eternal glory by killing one crown prince of Troy. Now you can win glory by killing another. And that, of course, was all the encouragement it took but Neoptolemus by now, of course, was, well, getting into this and beginning to enjoy the killing, the hacking, the butchery, and the bragging. So instead of simply, well, killing the young child swiftly with his sword, Neoptolemus grabbed the child, Astynax, by the foot, then dragged him with one arm and Andromaca, the screaming mother, with another back down the corridors of the palace to the throne room where they found the dead body of gutted King Priam, cradled in the arms of his widow, Hecuba. And, well, what Neoptolemus did next shocked and horrified even Odysseus. Grabbing Astyanax, the two-year-old boy, by his foot, Neoptolemus raised Astyanax high above his head and then crashed Astyanax's body down again and again, repeatedly against the corpse of the boy's dead grandfather, King Priam, beating Astyanax's brains out of his body. It took a few moments. It was messy. It was bloody. The boy screamed, but eventually went limp, and Astyanax, the only remaining heir to Troy's throne, lay dead. Neoptolemus turned to Odysseus with a grin on his face. This is fun. So who's next? And with that, he summarily tossed the corpse of Astynax out the window of the palace to the courtyard below. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just by way of passing, some accounts of the fog of war, what happened that evening to Astynax, differ, and in those accounts, the authors argue that it was Odysseus, not Neoptolemus, who ultimately killed Astynax and threw his body out the window. And this raises an interesting question about whether in warfare it is the soldier following the orders and the prompts of the general, or the general himself, who is most responsible for the well, the horrifying things that happened in the night and the fog of war. Whatever the case, Odysseus had used Neoptolemus to his own ends, and Neoptolemus, the 12-year-old man-boy, had successfully eliminated any future hope to a succession to the throne of Priam and Hecuba. Neoptolemus then grabbed King Priam's corpse, and dragging the corpse of Priam with one hand and kicking and pushing along Andromaca with the other, he left the palace. When he got to the main gates of the citadel, Neoptolemus stopped, took his sword and severed off old King Priam's head, leaving his body there for the hungry dogs to lap up the blood. And it might be, well, a fitting end for old dear King Priam for us to pause now and reflect back on Priam's words a very, very long time ago, back when Troy hadn't fallen, back when his son Hector had not fought Achilles and died at Achilles' hands. And ladies and gentlemen, you'll remember a night when Hecuba, Priam, stood on the battlements of the city of Troy and begged and urged their Hector to come inside and not fight Achilles, prophesying all the horrifying things that would happen to Troy were Hector to die and the Greeks to sack the city. And on that night, here are the precise words, as recorded by Homer, that Priam said. So come inside the walls, my child. Have pity on me, while I am still living, before Father Zeus kills me after I see many horrors. My sons destroyed, my daughters raped and dragged off, my palace ransacked, children tossed from the walls and smashed onto the ground my sons' wives grabbed by the deadly hands of the Greeks. And I myself, last of all, my own dogs will tear me and eat me in front of the door of my own home when some soldier enters and spears me. The very watchdogs I raised in my house and fed at my table will greedily lap up my blood. Oh, when an old man is killed, And the dogs defile his grey head and beard, and chew on his genitals. Can anything more shameful ever occur to a wretched human being? And as to Hecuba's fate, well, we know very little about Hecuba's fate. The ancient Bronze Age patriarchal chroniclers of such things didn't really care so much about Hecuba. It was the male line that mattered, but... All accounts agree that somehow on that night, on the night of the horse, Hecuba went mad. Today we would likely call it shock or PTSD, but apparently Hecuba never recovered, and some accounts argue that Odysseus took her back to Ithaca with him out of pity or who knows what else, but we'll never really know. Hecuba just vanished from history. So finally, ladies and gentlemen, let's turn our attention to the story of Helen and Menelaus and what happened to that, well, happy couple on the night of the horse. And to do so, I think it's best if we actually pick up the story with Menelaus on his boat, rowing back hard with his men and all the other warlords from the island of Tenedus, intent on pulling up in the wee hours of the morning and beginning the sack of the city of Troy. Now that evening, I think it's fair to say that Menelaus had to well confront a fundamental decision which he had likely been, at some level in his life, putting off for the last 11 or 12 years. And the decision that he now had to make, because now the night of the horse was decision time, was what he truly and really believed about Well, that event that had happened 12 years ago when his wife Helen had vanished across the Aegean Sea with Paris, Prince of Troy. And what Menelaus had to decide and settle in his own mind before he went charging through that city looking for Helen was, well, what had happened on that night when Paris and Helen had left Sparta. And the options were pretty binary for him. If he wanted, he could believe that she had voluntarily run away, arm-in-arm arm with Paris, and if that was the case, then, well, Menelaus' course was clear. He would find Helen, and he would exact his revenge on a faithless wife by crashing his sword down on her head. End of story. But the other option, of course, going through Menelaus' mind, likely on some level for the last 11-12 years, had been the possibility that, well... His wife, Helen, had actually been abducted or kidnapped by Paris, Prince of Troy, and wanted nothing more than to be reunited with her dear husband, Menelaus, and an opportunity to resume their domestic marital life together back in Sparta. And if that was the case, well then, Menelaus' mission or goal on the Night of the Wooden Horse was, well, to save Helen, the languishing damsel in distress, if you will, and Menelaus's role, of course, was to be the, well, the knight in shining armor who saved his dear wife. Now, we, from our perspective, of course, know that neither version of those two accounts of what happened to Helen that night are at all true. We know that poor Helen was a victim of, well, Aphrodite and her cruel tricks, and that Helen hit by one of those erotic arrows, had absolutely no choice. She had been overwhelmed by the goddess. She was a victim of forces beyond anything that poor Helen could do about it. But that was certainly not an explanation which any, well, red-blooded patriarchal man in the ancient Bronze Age world was willing to accept as an explanation for their wife's behaviour. It it established precedents which, well, no red-blooded man in the ancient patriarchal world was willing to accept about his wife's behaviour. So, Menelaus, it didn't occur to him that it would be idea. It was very simple. She had either run away, voluntarily, or she had been kidnapped against her will. Now, there were a lot of times over the last 12 years, Menelaus, I told you, wasn't the brightest of the warlords, but he, 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 he likely knew, he could likely suspect that the other warlords, at least behind his back or when they didn't think he was listening, were snickering a little bit. And the general consensus inside of the Greek army is that Helen had well, run away with Paris, a much younger, more charming, and interesting, and exotic man. But Menelaus, that was not the story that he was too keen on accepting, because it was a story that cast him, of course, in a very, very bad light indeed. So what had ended up happening, folks, is that Menelaus had come to believe, well, the official propaganda story, which had been cooked up by his big brother, Agamemnon. Agamemnon had used, well, the abduction of Helen line of thinking as the entire raison d'etre for Operation Trojan Storm in the first place. That had been what had, well, pulled all of the warlords together who had signed Odysseus's oath of the quartered horse. So the official propaganda line back in Greece with the public is that poor Helen had been kidnapped against her will, and, well, Menelaus, after 12 years of telling this story, had come to firmly, firmly believe it, and it was a story which well, certainly cast him, as I said, in a much more positive light than, well, the story that some poor cuckolded husband had lost his wife to a younger man, which is a pretty ancient age-old and repeating story and has nothing too spectacular or exciting about it, particularly from the perspective of the cuckold husband. So, Menelaus, on the night of the wooden horse, went charging through the city of Troy, heading up towards the citadel and the royal quarter's with no other mission on his mind but to save his dear languishing wife Helen, kill whoever he could. Menelaus, of course, would have heard that Paris was dead, and Menelaus, of course, would have heard that Deophobus was the new husband. But Menelaus would exact whatever revenge he had to on any man he found near Helen, and then he would take his languishing bride back in his arms and bring her back to Sparta, and the two of them would settle down into, well the lifetime of domestic bliss, which Menelaus had somehow managed to construct as a fantasy reality inside of the 12 years he had been away from Helen. Well, Menelaus made it to Helen's bedchambers unopposed, raised his sword, fully expecting that when he crashed into that room, that Deophobus, the current husband, would be standing there and put up some sort of a stiff fight against him, and Menelaus, who recognizing that he was an older man and Deiphobus was much younger, expected that it was going to take all of his military skill and Spartan training to dispatch of Deophobus. So sword held high, Menelaus kicked in the door and charged into Helen's bedchamber. Now before I account what happens next, let's reflect on Helen's experience of the knight of the horse and what Helen might be expecting to happen at some stage, when some Greek comes into her in Deophobos' bedchamber. And here's what we know. Well, Deophobus, far from being ready to heroically defend his dear new wife, Helen, Deophobus had actually got into his cups early in the evening, I told you. He was passed out, dead, drunk on the bed. So Helen didn't have to worry about Deophobos. But Helen had every reason to worry about what might happen when her husband Menelaus entered that room because of course Helen had grown up inside of this patriarchal world and Helen would have understood that the general consensus was that she had been a faithless wife and therefore Menelaus would arrive and summarily take off her head. And Helen had got to planning. Helen wasn't happy but Helen certainly did not want to die. So when Helen considered her options, anticipating the arrival of Menelaus, Helen decided that she would have to use, well, the only weapon which the gods had gifted her with, her absolutely terrible, wonderful, spectacular, dangerous beauty. So Helen spent some time preparing herself. And on the moment when Menelaus crashed into the bedroom, sword held high, Helen demurely stood up, looked her husband dead in the eye, then dropped her dress to the ground, exposing that glorious gift or curse of the gods. And at that moment, of course, Menelaus, who had absolutely no intention of killing Helen, <laughs> well, you can imagine Menelaus's perspective, this was better than any possible fantasy fairy tale ending he could have expected, Not only was the damsel in distress ready and waiting, but the minute she had seen her dear husband, she had dropped the dress. What more could a lucky husband ask for? So Menelaus lowered his sword, stepped over and confidently and enthusiastically embraced his dear, loving, loyal wife, and Helen, recognizing that this was her best way of staying alive, returned that embrace with appropriate enthusiasm. So they had a moment in Helen's bedroom, Menelaus summarily dispatched Deiphobus of his head before poor Deiphobus even woke up and realized that his head was missing. And then Helen and Menelaus, hand in hand, exited the city of Troy and walked down to the beach to Menelaus's boats. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what happened to Helen and Menelaus at that point and from that point forward in that strange and improbable marriage, and whether Helen and Menelaus ever managed to cobble some sort of an arrangement together to compensate for the previous 12 years, and whether Helen and Menelaus ever proved to be happy as a couple or as individuals, well, all I can tell you right now is, wouldn't that be a really awesome story for another day? So, at this point, having explored well the fog of war testimonies and experiences of the major warlords let's sort of zoom out our camera lens and take a look at what's happening in the broader picture of the sack of troy it's now dawn the fighting has been going on for a few hours and well essentially every trojan soldier who is left is either dead or has escaped through one of the final two exits and is up there hiding in the forest with the civilians that have managed to escape Sometime towards dawn, either some crazy or responsible Greek soldier or one of the deities or a crazy or responsible Greek soldier urged on by one of the deities had decided it would be a clever business to set the interior of the city on fire. Now, I told you that the walls of Troy were stone, and of course the citadel and the palace had some stone, but most of the city was actually wooden buildings with thatch roofed huts. And a firestorm started, and because there was absolutely no political leadership on this side or the other side, the Trojan political leadership was dead. Uh, The Greek warlords were all doing their own thing and looking after their own business. Well, as Agamemnon stood there and screamed and tried to organize some sort of a fire brigade, Troy, the greatest city in the eastern Mediterranean world, went up in flames. And before long, the firestorm was so fierce that the Greek soldiers had to leave the city and get out to the Trojan plain and away from the flames. And that takes us to the following morning. By the following morning, the Greek army, that 100,000 men-at-arms who had sailed across the Aegean Sea 10 years ago on what Agamemnon had promised would be a four-week mission, Well, those hundred thousand men were standing on the shore and experiencing the inevitable, well, the hangover of the morning after the night before. The killing, the looting, the raping, the butchering was done. That had been fun. But now they were confronted with the grim reality of whether the entire damn thing had been worth it at all. And the evidence suggested that it had not the fabled glorious trojan treasure which agamemnon had been dangling in front of these foot soldiers imaginations for the last decade proved to be completely non-existent oh there was some gold and there was some treasure inside of troy there was there was plate and there was there were beautiful things inside of inside of the royal palace but there was absolutely no gold on the scale necessary to adequately compensate Uh, men who had been away from their homes for 10 years, particularly when there were 100,000 of them standing at the beach waiting for the compensation. So that led to a fierce debate among the warlords, and one option was that, well, Troy had never been as wealthy as the Greeks had assumed it was, that it was actually not that rich a city to begin with, and the other warlords who more logically and reasonably assumed that over the last 10 years of the siege, well, The wealth, the real gold, the real silver of Troy, had quietly bled out of the rear exits of the palace as, well, the royal family had sent huge, huge sums of gold to possible allies in other parts of the, well, the Middle East or the Eastern Mediterranean world, and those allies hadn't come to Troy's aid but had been quite, quite happy to hold on to the gold. Another possibility, of course, is that some of the wealthier, more self-interested or canny of the Trojans had well, secreted out their personal wealth and stash of gold and had ferreted it away offshore someplace in the hope that if they got out of the city alive, they'd have something to rebuild with. Whatever it was, Agamemnon realized that he was holding on to an army at the near knife edge of mutiny, and he wasn't going to get an awful lot of help in keeping that army together from his fellow warlords the grand coalition of Operation Trojan Storm fell apart the day after the sack of Troy. It was really only a tenuous coalition to begin with. These Greek warlords had spent, well, most of the last few hundred years feuding and fighting among themselves, so, so they just reverted to form once there was no longer anything useful to hold them all together. And it got pretty ugly in the beach that afternoon pretty quickly. And, well, by late afternoon, an argument had actually broken out between the two brothers, Menelaus and Agamemnon and the argument almost came to blows. Now the argument turned out to be well it was about 10 years of misery and anger and frustration but the official thing that the argument turned out to be about was actually what to do with a particular Greek warlord named Lesser Ajax. Now I apologize folks I wish his name was different because well I, I hate to use the name Ajax in about what I'm going to tell you because I do not want to besmirch the legacy of well, the Ajax, the bulwark of the Greeks that we all know and love. But there was another man inside of the Greek forces, a minor warlord named Lesser Ajax, and even back in the Bronze Age, the Greeks chose to call him Lesser Ajax, not only because of his stature, but because of his character too. And it turned out that on the night of the horse, Lesser Ajax had committed a blasphemy to offend the gods of the very most dangerous and first order. Lesser Ajax had burst into the Temple of Athena, the temple beside the wooden horse, found the virgin prophetess Cassandra clutching onto a statue of the goddess Athena, and then Lesser Ajax had summarily pulled her from the statue and raped her on the floor of the temple. Now, when reports of this made it back to Menelaus and Agamemnon and the other warlords the next morning, they recognized that this was a very, very nasty business. Athena had favored them with the city, but now one of their members, one of their warlords indeed, had actually violated Athena's temple and the rules about, well, attacking or raping or killing somebody inside of a temple who was holding on to the statue of a god. So they summarily set out, the other warlords, to find lesser Ajax with plans of stoning him to death there on the beach as their way of saying sorry to the goddess Athena. But Lesser Ajax, it turned out, recognizing in the morning that he was in an awful lot of trouble, had managed to hide himself and couldn't be found anywhere. Well, Agamemnon was all for staying until they either found Lesser Ajax or until they made appropriate and glorious sacrifices to Athena and all of the other deities before they dared depart across the wine-dark sea with, well, the possibility of an angry god on Olympus looking down. But Menelaus, who, well, his only purpose for coming to Troy had been to get Helen. He wasn't messing around. Menelaus wanted to go home. He was willing to take his chances in crossing the Aegean Sea and going home right away. Forget the sacrifices, Menelaus said. And it turned out that the warlords split pretty well down the middle on whether to stay with Agamemnon or to depart with Menelaus. So half the coalition army left with Menelaus. And, well, what happened to them, as I said earlier, is an interesting story for another day. So I want to stay on the beach with Agamemnon. Agamemnon stayed on the beach. Odysseus stayed on the beach. They were the main two warlords that stayed. And they stayed for different reasons, of course. Agamemnon stayed on the beach, well, because Agamemnon was facing some psychological problems. And the the term is modern, but the emotion and the experience for poor Agamemnon was, well, universal. Imagine poor Agamemnon. He had spent the last 12 years of his life orchestrating, planning, mobilizing, and then coordinating Operation Trojan Storm. It had cost him everything. And as Agamemnon stood there and looked at the smoldering ruins of the city of Troy, which was now, due to the help of the Greeks, the Trojans, and the Olympian deities, so torn apart that no man would ever live in it again, Agamemnon had to come to the grim conclusion that the last decade of his life had been a complete and pointless waste of time. And in the process of that decade, of course, Agamemnon had done some absolutely horrifying things in order to justify Operation Trojan Storm. Foremost among them, of course, the memory of his daughter, Iphigenia. So now, as Agamemnon stood at the beach and stared up at the smoldering ruins of that city, Agamemnon just couldn't bring himself to pack up his Mycenaean soldiers and head home across the wine-dark sea. It was just psychologically too difficult. He needed to keep wandering through the ruins of the city and and, and pointing out to any stragglers or refugees that he found and saying things like, I am Agamemnon, king of kings, look on the city I destroyed. And, well, it, it was sad, really, as Agamemnon recognized that everything he had worked for was, well, now ashes and dust and very soon would be covered over by the Mediterranean sands. But eventually, Agamemnon recognized there was no point in staying, so he loaded up onto his boat and set sail for home. He had one consolation prize with him, of course. When Lesser Ajax had vanished, well, he had left behind Cassandra, that stunningly beautiful half-mad girl who kept spouting out gibberish but had a body to die for, and Agamemnon decided that she would be some form of a comfort or a consolation prize for him, at least on the journey home, and with any possibility he might move her into the palace as a concubine if he thought it was a good idea when he got back to Mycenae. Now, she was a difficult girl, Agamemnon recognized, and really annoying, and Agamemnon grimly acknowledged that her constant yelling and screaming and babbling nonsense would get onto his nerves. Only this morning she'd started yelling about axes and bathtubs of all things. But Agamemnon, looking at her body, recognized that, well, if you put a gag into the girl's mouth, she would be good for a couple of hours' good sport below decks on the journey home. And that left, ladies and gentlemen, only Odysseus, cleverest and wiliest of the Greeks on the beach. Odysseus was there with his twelve boats of Ithacan soldiers, and the minute that the other Greeks had departed, heading home penniless, Odysseus had gathered his crew around, given orders... And the entire lot of them had marched back into the smouldering ruins of Troy, and within a matter of about 35 minutes and a wee bit of digging, had located the buried and well-hidden Trojan treasury. Of course Troy had treasure. A city that wealthy and that powerful couldn't have lost all of its treasure. It was simply that the other warlords hadn't thought it through carefully, but Odysseus had. And so in the weeks leading up to the Night of the Wooden Horse, Odysseus had paid the appropriate bribes to the appropriate Trojan bureaucrats and officials. And we don't know whether he promised them gold or whether he promised them a safe exit from the burning city when the inevitable happened. But Odysseus found out precisely where the Trojan treasury was located. And then on the Night of the Horse, Odysseus had taken a few of his trusted men and said, Boys, I want you to tear down a building set it on fire in front of the entrance to that treasury door so that nobody will see it in the wreckage. But the next afternoon, after the sack of Troy, by the time the timbers had cooled, there was no problems heading back to that, pulling aside the burned beams, revealing the treasury door, which they opened, stepped in, and loaded their 12 boats high, gloriously high, with Trojan treasure. Then Odysseus called his men around him, pointed out across the wine-dark sea, and gave a speech. Gentlemen, he said, it's been well over 10 years since we sailed away from home. We've left behind our wives, we've left behind our sons, we've left behind our forests, our fields, our kingdoms, our crops. But now, by the grace of the gods, we are going home. Ithaca is a mere five days' sail away, gentlemen. I promise you, boys, our adventures, Our tribiles, our turmoils, our miseries, they're all over. We're going home now, boys. And with that, Odysseus set sail across the wine-dark sea. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the mighty city of Troy fell. And the Trojan citizens, well, those fortunate enough to have survived the 10 years of siege and starvation, and those fortunate enough to have survived the night of the horse, well, they joined humanity's ever-growing list of refugees from war, starvation, hunger, and all those other horrifying things that we as human beings inflict upon ourselves and each other. So now let's turn our attention to the question of, well, why did Troy fall? Who was to blame for this? Uh, do you uh, do you want to blame, as Homer does, Zeus? Uh, Homer, at the start of the Iliad, announces that Troy was destined to fall. It was the will of Zeus. And if you want to make a case that the Olympian gods were to blame, well, you can pretty well point to almost any of the last 20 episodes of Trojan War, the podcast, and show how those interfering, annoying, and, well, oft times completely amoral Olympian gods precipitated the entire miseries of the Trojan people. On the other hand, you might choose to look to deeper, darker forces, and again I've alluded to these in previous podcasts. You might argue that Zeus and the other Olympian gods were not, well, the authors of Fate and Deadly Destiny, but actually only the pawns or the agents of those darker forces of Fate and Deadly Destiny, and for Reasons unbeknownst to us, and likely unbeknownst to the Olympian gods themselves, Troy had to fall. Now, there are those also of you listening who will say, come on, Jeff, uh, you can explain this entire thing geopolitically. There's absolutely no need whatsoever to even refer to things like the gods or fate and deadly destiny. Uh, Troy clearly fell, you're going to point out, because of failed political leadership in some particularly bad, individuals and some failed decisions on the part of those individuals. Now, I don't know. I've been looking at this material for years. I've immersed myself for thousands of hours in questions of the Trojan War and the city of Troy and why it fell. And to tell you the truth, at this stage, I really am no closer to an answer than I was before I started. I think the only thing I could say to you right now is that, well, the city fell, and there is doubtless no shortage of blame for the fall of Troy to go well round so let's leave the trojan refugees struggling for some hope of survival in new lands and turn our attention instead to the fate of those victorious glorious greeks on their return back to the greek homeland and explore well what did the trojan war do for them was it a victory how great a victory was it what was the consequence of that victory to the greek people and here ladies and gentlemen well we do have pretty good and ample evidence on which the historians, the archaeologists, and indeed even us storytellers all agree. And that argument is that the victory of the Greeks over Troy was a classic case of a Pyrrhic victory. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term Pyrrhic victory, allow me to briefly digress and tell you a really cool story. And, and here's how the story goes. Once upon a time, and the once upon a time was actually in precisely 279 BCE, there was a king named Pyrrhus. He was a king of a relatively small nation, and he chose to take on a much larger nation in a war. The nation in question was Rome. And somehow during the battle which he fought in 279 BCE, at least if you believe the accounts of the historian Plutarch, well Pyrrhus managed to defeat a much more large and powerful Roman army. But the cost of Pyrrhus's victory over Rome was so overwhelming to Pyrrhus's army and nation that Following the battle, Pierce is reported to have claimed, and here I'm going to have to paraphrase, but something along the lines of this, another victory such as this, and I will be completely destroyed. And so humanity gained the term a Pyrrhic victory, and certainly if you want to look at the Greek victory over Troy, it would qualify as a textbook case of that situation where, well, what was gained was certainly insufficient to compensate for the cost and the value of what was lost in the process. So let's, well, review first of all the gains, to be fair. One of the reasons why the Greeks had gone to war against Troy was the geopolitical reason of attempting to, well, better access the trade routes which Troy dominated and controlled and heavily taxed between, well, the Eastern Mediterranean and the world of Asia and Asia Minor. And with Troy now out of the way, in theory at least, the Greeks were going to be better able to import the copper and the tin that they needed to manufacture their bronze military weapons and their implements for farming and that sort of thing. Now, whether that was worth the cost of the 10 years of battle, well, most historians and archaeologists said that it is certainly not and here's why here's what was on the losses side of the ledger sheet if you will and and i'll kind of itemize these in quick detail we could go into length on this and there's all kinds of wonderful historians who have written entire treatises or even books on the topic but here's sort of if you will the quick cook's tour through the things that the greek world lost as a consequence of the war and the victory against troy first thing of course the greek homeland suffered during the course of the 10 years it suffered badly and the reason for this is pretty clear the best and the brightest of the Greek leadership, the warlord kings, well, they were all camped out on the plains of Troy, and that meant that the people, if you will, caretaking or housekeeping their kingdoms back in Greece were, well, the second-tier minds and leadership. And as a consequence, as the ten years of the war dragged on, the internal economies and governance and the civil society of the Greek warlord kingdoms gradually degenerated, A, due to bad leadership, and B, because more and more and more of the Greek homeland's resources, well, fell into that black hole that was financing the war against Troy. And then there was a problem of what happened following the war. When the Greek warlords were away fighting against Troy, it meant that their home nations weren't as well or adequately protected as usual, and as a consequence, as always happens, that meant there was a power vacuum, and other peoples, other nations, and other powers decided that now was an opportune time to fill that vacuum. Now, historians are still debating up until this day, well, who the peoples were and where they came from that moved into the Greek homeland during and immediately following the Trojan War. And I won't get into that debate today because I'm certainly not qualified to answer it. But what the historians and the archaeologists do all agree on is that those mighty warlord kingdoms and their citadels, uh, for example, Agamemnon's Mycenae, Almost immediately following the collapse of Troy, well, the Greek citadels and kingdoms fell into collapse and disrepair themselves. Foreigners, strangers, other people from either Europe or the Mediterranean moved in, and the Greeks came home from the Trojan War having to fight another war on their own homeland and being in a much depleted military position to do so so now let's turn our attention to the well the greek economy or the greek economy if you will and and here putting a cost onto the trojan war is really difficult but you have to imagine ladies and gentlemen the lost opportunity cost a hundred thousand greek men uh, fishermen farmers sailors manufacturers all sailed across the aegean sea and camped on the shores of troy for 10 long years and that meant that they weren't at home contributing to the homeland's economy and well You can't really put too high a price on that potential economic loss of those men spending years really doing nothing but waiting for a city to fall. And, of course, those young men, once the city of Troy fell, discovered that Troy didn't have the gold and the wealth to compensate for their lost time. And that led, of course, when those 100,000 men led home to major problems in the Greek social order. Suddenly, all the warlords discovered that they had 100,000 angry Greek men-at-arms back at home, and Agamemnon's much-promised treasure, that every soldier in the Greek army was going to be paid from the Trojan treasury, well, when it failed to materialize, the Greek soldiers, well, at least some of them, did what soldiers always do when they return home, and they discover that their promises of payment have not been met. The Greek soldiers ransacked and savaged their way across their own home states and nations, looking for some sort of compensation for the lost 10 years at Troy. And was there any way of stopping this from happening? Well, possibly if Agamemnon's Grand Coalition Army had have stayed together. If the warlords had have stayed banded into Operation Trojan Storm, then collectively they might have been able to re-establish some sort of order. But as you know, Operation Trojan Storm collapsed. On the very night that the city of troy burned to the ground so before long the greek warlords were back to doing what they had always done and what they did best which was engaging in their own petty feuds and fights with each other so now i want to turn to another hidden cost of the war and this is a cost of the war which you don't find chronicled at all inside of homer or inside of any of the actual classic epic works and recounts of the trojan war Because back in the time period that these accounts were written, I don't think that the people of the time period actually knew how to measure or acknowledge or even understand these costs. But I want to talk about the, well, the psychological devastation and the trauma that the 10 years of fighting against Troy brought to the Greek soldiers who, well, had to return after spending 10 years on a beach to their wives, their children, their families, their fields, their farms, and their normal lives. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we now know in the 21st century, and certainly we learned the hard way in the 20th century that just ended, the psychological trauma and devastation which protracted warfare does to soldiers who have been involved in that warfare. And now in the 21st century, we are only now beginning to actually put some sort of actuarial price onto the cost of, well, what those psychological injuries, that post-traumatic stress disorder those sort of things due to a human being and to the culture to which that human being is returning. So though we have no records from the Bronze Age talking about this sort of thing, really we can assume those men fighting were human beings just like the men who fight today and consequently they would have experienced the very same phenomena even if they didn't have the names or the psychological labels for it that we now do today. And finally ladies and gentlemen I want to approach a, well, more difficult and ethereal concept, but I think it's really, really important to talk about inside of the context of, well, the Greek war against Troy and our own understanding of what happens inside of contemporary wars. And the final cost, which seems to happen to all nations engaged in long, protracted battles, which take forever to attain victory, and particularly for nations that engage in long, protracted wars of well, dubious moral merit to begin with, well, something happens inside of the psyche or the national identity of the peoples or the nation that fights those wars. And even if victory is ultimately attained, the victory is often tainted by the compromises or the costs or the rationalizations of victory that have to be made along the way. So, in order to attain victory, the nation finds itself trading off its foundational values, its core beliefs, the things which it always believed as a nation it stood for, and and the argument is always made that well, once we attain victory, we will return and resume to normal business, and and these things inside of our national identity, our national values, our our, our core symbols, well, they'll all be returned after victory, but somehow it never quite seems to happen. The course of the long, protracted war somehow seems to, well, sour a people or, or, or harden a people or diminish a people. And even once victory is attained, the elusive things inside of the national core values sometimes never return. In short, they're lost forever. And the the people that emerge afterwards, the politicians certainly, but the citizens also, and often the entire sense of, well, civil society becomes diminished or cheapened during the course of what happens after that war. Now, folks, this is an ethereal concept, so I, I don't want to hammer it home too heavily. But what I will invite you to do is, is to reflect on the history of your own nation and your own recent conflicts. I'm, as I record this particular episode of Trojan War, the podcast, there are currently listeners in at least 83 different nations worldwide. So, so take a moment, folks, and think about your nation's recent battles, long protracted campaigns, and even your victories. And, and, and maybe for fun, pose the question... Did my people, did my nation, in the course of an attempt to attain victory, sacrifice, leave behind or suspend something critical and important to what we initially valued and what it was that we were initially fighting for? And I guess the, well, the adjunct question to that is, once a victory was attained, did that core national value or belief ever come back again? Now, folks, of course, I can't answer this for your nation. I'm certainly in no position to do that. but. I do feel fairly confident in answering it on behalf of, well, Agamemnon and Achilles and Odysseus's Bronze Age Greek world. And the quick answer is that something was damaged inside of the national psyche. And we even have the Greek writer Hesiod writing 500 years after the Greek invasion and destruction of the city of Troy, arguing that the men who set off at the start of the Trojan War belonged to the heroic age of men, and 10 years later, the men who came back belonged to what Hesiod disparagingly refers to as the darker Iron Age of the Iron Men. So something is lost inside of war, and the things that, well, nations do inside of war to attain victory, and, well, the Greek world seriously lost something and whatever they lost sapped their ability to carry on to rebuild their societies to wage war and fend off other aggressors and greece descended into what a lot of historians refer to as a dark age before it finally emerged into the glorious wonderful world of classical greece now at this stage you're likely hoping that now that i've given you the giant snapshot picture i might return to a more intimate examination of the particular warlords and the heroes of this story. I mean, obviously, we need to know what happened to Agamemnon when he got back to Mycenae. Uh, How did Menelaus and Helen fare with that particular attempt at a marriage reconstruction? And what about Odysseus, the cleverest of the Greeks? What was his homecoming like? And ladies and gentlemen, I wish I could answer those questions now, but the truth of the matter is that those questions are stories, amazing stories to be told on another day. and. Well, I regret inside of another podcast. Now is the time for me to say my goodbyes to you and to wrap up Trojan War the podcast. And if you ask me, Am I coming back? Will there be more stories? Will there be a continuation of this story? Are you going to carry on with the answers to those questions, Jeff? Well, the honest answer I can give you now is I don't yet know. All I can tell you is that as I sit here and I share these words with you now i feel a little bit like odysseus likely felt standing the morning after the sack of troy his mission complete and staring out across the wine dark sea wondering what perils what pitfalls or what possibilities might await him on his journey home so will there be more trojan war the podcast well i guess we'll just have to wait and see won't we in the meantime I will stay in touch with you as I decide on my way forward, and I will keep you posted on my plans. The best way to keep track of what I'm doing is to go to Trojan War, the podcast's Facebook site, where I will post information on in all of my future projects. I will also continue to offer updates and tweets via Twitter, and if you want to subscribe to me on Twitter, then the handle is Trojan War Pod. As I said, if you want to talk to me about your ideas, your plans, your suggestions for the podcast that is finished or directions that you think might be worth me considering on my route forward, then you can contact me via the website trojanwarpodcast.com and I will do my level best to respond to every one of your personal notes if you send them off and take the trouble to talk to me. Now finally, right before I say goodbye, one tiny request. If you have enjoyed Trojan War the podcast and you are feeling grateful, then you might want to consider trojan where the podcast as my business card or living resume send it to individuals organizations peoples arts groups academic groups cruise ships tour companies anybody you think might be interested in me showing up live and gracing their event their organization their travel engagement use your imagination here ladies and gentlemen But basically anybody who might go, hey, this looks like an awful lot of fun. Jeff tells a compelling and interesting story. The post-story commentaries are fun. Let's hire this guy for some sort of a gig. Now, if that's not inside of the realm of possibility for you, the other thing you could do is to just hop over to iTunes, locate my podcast on the iTunes store. Just plug in Trojan War podcast. It'll show up and you'll find that there's a place there where you can write a wonderfully glowing and generous review if you're feeling so inclined. And ladies and gentlemen, all I can tell you is that those reviews really, really, really matter. iTunes pays attention to the quantity and quality of the reviews, and the rest of the world, of course, pays attention to iTunes. And ultimately, of course, the absolutely best way that you can show your support for, well, Trojan War, the podcast, and help me to make a reasonable business case for moving forward with a continuation of all the myriad possible stories in the Trojan War epic story arc is to send, well, a little bit of your gold, your silver, or your copper to my Performer Storyteller's Cup. Like Demodocus, my favourite storyteller way back from the Bronze Age, well, we storytellers were in it for the art, but the reality is that part of what we do is a business too, and we need to stay afloat, and we need to stay financially viable if we are going to be allowed to continue to listen to our storytelling muses. And now it's really time for me to say goodbye. But I need to thank you for being such an awesome and engaged audience. I I can't tell you, ladies and gentlemen, how deeply touched and moved and flattered I've been by the constant correspondence which I've received over the last 20 episodes of Trojan War, the podcast. And as I've performed episodes, as I've sat quietly in my room talking into a microphone, I've well held you all in mind. And there's a saying inside of the storytelling community that a great story requires, first of all, an absolutely great audience. And I want to thank you for holding up your end of the bargain so magnificently. So it's been a pleasure and indeed an honor to share with you, well, what I consider to be history's most awesome epic so it's goodbye for now. But please keep in touch. Hopefully our paths will cross via podcast or in person someday very soon. And in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, try to be kind to each other and lead good, even epically good, lives. Bye for now.